Hi, everyone. I'm Courtney Stewart, Vice President of Strategic Communications at Missouri Foundation for Health in St. Louis. I'm so excited to be here today at ComNet V. I think this is what my sixth ComNet. Um, sad that we're not in person, that we're not in Atlanta. I was excited. I was excited to tour some HBCUs and get a little bit of culture, but I'm really, really excited to be here today. And I'd like to welcome Dr. Rich Besser. He's the president and CEO of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and thank him for being here today with us to have this conversation. Thanks for joining us, Rich. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm, I'm really thrilled to be here, Courtney, to have a chance to, to speak with you. This is, uh, this is my first comment. And so uh, hopefully the first of, of many. Yeah, ComNet is a, is a great place to be. So you're among friends. Um, so I, I, I guess we can jump right in. Um, I'll start with asking, you are always, you're dubbed a, a public health, a public health expert. Um, you're this public health guy. So I think um, we want to know, how did you end up in public health? Was this always your career choice? Were you, uh, as a child, interested in, in getting into this career space? How did you get here? Yeah, uh, I mean, that's, a, that, that's a, a, a great question. I grew up in, in, a, in a house that was very involved in, in health care. Uh, my, uh, my dad's a doctor. My mom's a social worker. My, uh, my grandfather is a, do a doctor in Philadelphia. And and my grandmother was his, his nurse. And so I was exposed to, to healthcare uh, very early on and saw the, the possibilities it, it had to impact on people's lives. Um, but I, I also felt like for me, a different approach to health was, was, more, uh, was more interesting. And the idea of, of having an impact on, on populations, on big groups of health. Um, our household had, had a social justice bent and the idea that you could use uh, the tools of, of, of public health to uh, affect the ability of people to achieve health and improve health for people here and around the globe. It, it, it attracted me when I was really young and uh, you know, I had the opportunity to spend a lot of time overseas. I just, I just thought it was powerful and, and I've, I haven't been disappointed. I've come at public health through my career from different angles, you know, governmental and academic and uh, from the private sector and now in, in philanthropy. And each one has uh, different possibilities, uh, different tools to, to try and uh, allow people to lead uh, healthy lives. Great, so just not long ago, you were on the other side with ABC as a medical correspondent and, and health correspondent, and now you're in this big world of philanthropy. How has that transition been for you? You know, it's, it's, it's taken a, a lot of learning. Uh, I'm, I'm still relatively new to philanthropy. I've, I've been here now for about three and a half years. Mm -hmm. um, and it's exciting for me to see the power of philanthropy to, to help support communities in making the change that they know needs to, to happen so that people truly have opportunities, so that there is, is health equity. When I, I went to ABC, I, I, I went there from, from after 13 years in, in the government at the Centers for Disease Control. And I, I had led the agency at the start of the, the H1N1 flu pandemic in 2009. And what really struck me during that period 
we we use communication um, as a critical tool in in our response. Uh, we recognize that you know in the setting of of a public health emergency, an emerging infection, a new disease, um, what you're going to want is for people to to understand what's going on and to follow your advice. And communications is the most powerful tool in public health for establishing trust and maintaining trust. Uh, and I know we'll talk about it. It's one of those, it's one of the tools that's been taken away from CDC during this pandemic. But, but what we found during H1N1 was uh, from polling from the Harvard School of Public Health was that the trust in government was, was high as it was higher than had ever been seen in a public health response. And it was because we, we practiced transparency. We told people what we knew, what we didn't know, and what we were doing to get new answers, what people could do to protect their health. And it, it really gave people confidence that things were going in the right direction. And so when, when um, the permanent director, Tom Frieden, came into CDC, and I was thinking about what to do next in public health, um, I had an opportunity to go to ABC. And what I wanted to see was, you know, could I practice public health in front of a camera and have the same kind of opportunities for impact that uh, I saw from that role at, at, at CDC where I was on the media every day talking about a, a health crisis. Could, could I do that at ABC? And, you know, I really enjoyed that, especially during a health crisis, whether it was Ebola or, or flu periods or uh, those kinds of periods. But what I missed in the end was being in a sector that was really trying to uh, use its power to affect change. Mm -hmm. And so when I had the opportunity to come to, to the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation uh, with the enormous resources we have and to think about how could we as a philanthropy um, help move forward conditions in America uh, towards health, it was an opportunity that, that you know, was just too good to pass up. And so I, I, I left the, the world of ABC and I've just been uh, so thrilled by this world that I'm in now. So you brought up health equity and the work that you all are doing at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Rich, do you mind explaining what is health equity um, exactly in relation to that work? And, and why, is, why are you on the forefront of um, delivering those message on the importance of health equity right now? Yeah, you know, it, it's, it's a great question. There's, there's a lot of confusion around the word uh, equity uh, and health equity. What do you mean by that? Um, you know, when I think about equity and health equity, I, I think about opportunity. And what we're working towards is a day when everyone in America has a fair and just opportunity for health. And what that means is you have to recognize that for some in America, uh, there is incredible opportunity. Uh, uh, opportunity uh, is, is given based on uh, where someone lives, uh, the color of their skin, uh, the income of their, of, of their family, uh, their, their gender, their sexual orientation. All of those factors uh, play into the opportunity that someone has or the barriers that are there for them. Uh, so as a, as a foundation, we're focused on uh, what can we do to ensure that everyone in America has a fair and just opportunity for health. And so it's recognizing that people's needs will, will differ. It's very different from equality. 
know, where, where you say, okay, we're going to give everybody the exact same thing. Well, you know, if, if, if people are starting in a position where there's enormous barriers and, and those barriers can be from you know, all of the different isms, racism and sexism and, and homophobia, uh, then, in, then giving everyone the same thing isn't going to really truly pro pro provide that fair opportunity. So we're, we've been looking at all of our programming to say, how do we build, how do we apply an equity lens to it? Whether it's work in communities to create conditions where health will thrive or our work with families and children uh, so that, that all, all uh, uh, parents, all, all caregivers have what they know they need to provide for their children um, or, or our healthcare system. How do we move our healthcare system towards, towards justice? So that it's truly meeting the needs of people in communities. Um, this is what we think about when, when, when we talk about equity. But so, Rich, you're a white man of privilege, and you're leading. And because of that, your organization is considered a white organization. So, can you talk to this audience a little bit about the importance of the white of of the messenger who's delivering these messages of health equity? and why it's important, or is it important for all voices to, to be involved um, in delivering messaging that centers on equity? Does that matter? Yeah, I mean, that's, I, that's, a, that's a great question. And, um, you know, I can say over the years, it's gotten easier for me to talk about equity. I, re I remember I was doing a program um, uh, uh, at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Uh, we, we had put together a panel on um, race, place, and health, uh, and looking at, at all of the data that shows that, that uh, where you live really matters and your race matters in terms of your opportunities for health. And I was on, on this panel uh, with Shirley Franklin from, from Atlanta, the former mayor who's African-American, and Kevin Washington, who's the head of the National Y, who's African-American. And the interviewer was Maria Hinojosa, uh, from New York, just a terrific NPR journalist. I was talking to one of our communications officers, uh, an African-American woman, and, and I said, Nicole, um, what am I doing on this panel? Uh, here I am, you know, this white guy of privilege. Um, what am I doing up here on this panel? And uh, how do I have a voice in this? And she said, you know, if, if white men of privilege uh, don't own this and and own their part of the of the problem and the solution. We're not going to get anywhere. And so, it was really empowering for me to 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 recognize the role that that um, I have, the opportunity I have, because of all of the privileges that that I've had and I currently currently have to bring my voice to this, and not just not to say that. The problem of racism in America, the problem of racial inequity in America is a problem to be solved by the people who have uh, borne the brunt uh, of these oppressive systems. It's a, it's a problem for us all to, to solve together. And if we can't talk about it, if I can't talk about racism in America, we're not going to get anywhere. And that was very empowering for me uh, to be able to think about it from that perspective. Uh, not to say I'm coming with the solutions, um, but to recognize that that I need to be part of that conversation. Yeah. Um, in early March, Rich, you wrote an op-ed. I think it was featured in in the Washington Post. It was right 
when the pandemic was starting to hit us really hard. Um, and you were one of the first public health experts to connect the impact of COVID to the health equity issues. Why did you step out like that? Um, what That was a major communications decision. So can you talk about your decision to do that and why that was important at that time? Yeah, you know, I, I, I think as a foundation, um, we have really come a long way uh, in terms of, of our approach to communications and, and thinking about communications as a, as a powerful tool uh, for, for accomplishing or achieving the, the vision we have for America of a culture of health uh, based in, in, on health equity. And coming into the pandemic, um, you could see where we were headed. You could see that, you know, you, you couldn't see everything, but you knew that the, the burden of this pandemic was not going to fall evenly on society. Uh, and that, you know, given that, that before the pandemic, uh, for millions and millions of people in America, every day was a crisis, people living paycheck to paycheck, mm -hmm. uh, you know, so many people uh, uh, living in poverty. Uh, so many children not not getting what they need and deserve. Coming into a, a, a pandemic, this was not going to hit evenly. And so what we wanted to do in, in that op-ed um, was lift up uh, the policy failures that had led us to the situation where the impact was going to be very inequitable. Every public health crisis has hit people of color, low-income communities, harder than anywhere else. And we didn't want it to be an after action assessment, you know, to say like, like Katrina, you know, after the fact, wow, you know, this really hit uh, certain communities harder. We should have seen that coming. To us, it, 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 it's what's called a predictable surprise. And, and I, I, I took a course uh, in Boston and there was a, a, a professor who wrote a book called Predictable Surprises. And it's this idea that Something that's totally predictable happens and everyone act, acts like, wow, we didn't see that coming. So we wanted to lift up and say, you know, there have been incredible policy failures in this country that are putting us in, in dire jeopardy every day and in a situation of crisis are going to ensure that, that certain communities feel this more. You know, coming into this pandemic, 28 million people without health insurance. We're the wealthiest nation in the world and the only one that doesn't ensure health care is a right. Uh, you know, half of low-income workers who don't have sick leave or family medical leave. Um, so many people piecing it together with multiple jobs and so they lack un uh, unemployment insurance. And then the whole issue of housing and, and risk of eviction that doesn't play out fairly and evenly across America. It was clear how this was going to play out and we wanted to draw attention to it early uh, and we've tried to draw attention to it every single day, the issues of equity and racial equity and how that's playing out across America so that there couldn't be this, this feeling of, wow, we didn't see that coming. So you, you spoke there about the intersection of health equity and, and public health crisis and we see that a lot in our work, but there's a, I think there's a, another challenge that we face Rich, and that is overall how widespread this view um, of public of the public health system is. So, as communicators, what type of advice could you give us around messaging or communicating 
um, about a system that is not acknowledged, that is not respected, is not taken seriously until something like this, a pandemic happens or a Katrina or something uh, very catastrophic. So how do we as communicators um, embrace that challenge? The challenge of, of, of communicating the value of public health? Of public health um, when yeah. it's not well respected, widespread um, from the top. Yeah, it, it's. I, I would say when you look at the at, at this pandemic and where we are to date, and really the catastrophic response in America, um, you have to lay a lot of the the blame for that uh, on the fact that public health um, has not been allowed to lead. Uh, public health has not been allowed to communicate. Uh, you know, I kind of hinted at that at the beginning, but one of the most important tools that public health has is the ability to communicate. And very early on, uh, Dr. Massonier from CDC uh, gave a press conference and she said, this is going to get really bad. We have to be ready for that. And that shut down everything. You know, it was the right message. It's what people needed to hear. Um, being honest, being transparent is the way to go, but it clashed with the political message. And the political message was, hey, there's nothing to worry about. We got this under control. And you know, ever since then, we've been seeing this clash of messages where every public health leader across the nation, federal, state, local, has been saying the same thing, has been calling out what needs to be done, how our own behavior has an impact on the, the health of those around us. And, you know, I wear a mask because I care about you and your health and you wear one because you care about mine. That's been their message. And, and you've been hearing from the very top uh, an undercutting of that message. And as it's played out, um, it, it, it's had a number of consequences. It, it means that thousands of people have died uh, needlessly because people haven't done the right thing. Um, those deaths are not evenly spread out. So people of color and low-income individuals, people who, are, who don't have a choice about going to work, um, people who work in essential uh, occupations, who are frontline healthcare workers or in, in, in manufacturing or food supply or transportation or childcare, who have to go to work, they don't have a choice. And so by not following the course of public health, uh, the uh, communities of color, lower-income communities as well, have, have borne the, the brunt of this. And public health leaders across the country have been threatened and have lost their jobs and have been undercut. And, um, you know, it's, I could not have imagined a, a situation this dire, this grim, and this pandemic playing out this way um, by, by seeing our political leadership not following the, the, the direction of, of, of public health. Um, and that can change. You know, it's, we hit a milestone of 200,000 deaths uh, just yesterday. And I've been asked to reflect on that. And what, what I think we need to do is, is use it as a moment to not look back, but to look forward and say, what do we do to make sure that we're not talking about 300,000 deaths and 400,000 deaths? What needs to change? What policies have to be put in place so that people have of the resources that they need. That's how you tie it back into equity. What do people need to protect themselves, their families and their communities? That ties it into our work of, of, of philanthropy, of how do we provide communities with resources so that they can advocate for what they need? 
not us telling people what they need, but for trying to create space for voices and for advocacy and for, for movement and power to, to really affect changing communities so that we're not talking about 300,000 deaths and we're not talking about the disparate impact uh, on, on some communities in America. So what I'm hearing is in addition to um, having priorities around health equity um, and COVID and what this health crisis is, is showing us, we should also be thinking about empowerment in communities and advocacy. Um, any other messaging priorities that you would encourage us to, um, to lift up as well, Bridge? Yeah, you know, I, I, I would say we've, we're, we're focused in terms of outcomes in three areas. One is around policies. How do we help drive forward policies that will uh, uh, lead to more equity? Um, how do we help support uh, community power uh, so that communities can move forward on the changes that they know? And then the other area that we're really, uh, really engaging around is, is the idea of mindset shifts. How do you change how people think about health? You know, so in the setting of COVID, that, that, that personal behavior matters, uh, but the choices people make depend on the choices that they have. And for many people in America, they're forced to choose between uh, you know, going to work so they can put food on the table and pay the rent um, or staying home so that they can protect themselves and their family. And, that, and that's not a fair choice. Um, you know, how do we change the equation around who we value in America? You know, right now, children across our country are going back to school. Uh, but when you look at how we fund schools in America, uh, so much is funded through, through property taxes so that wealthy communities have what they need to be able to retrofit schools and bring on additional staff. And, and schools that are in communities that are less well off don't have those dollars. Uh, what does it say about how we value black and brown children? If those schools in, uh, that, that, that serve a greater proportion of, of children of color don't have the same resources to make the, the setting safe for those children, for the staff and, the, and, and those teachers. So, you know, mindsets is a key part of this, you know, looking at uh, shifting from this idea that it's all about personal personal behavior and, and uh, onto a model of the structures in society uh, can either promote health or, or prevent health from flourishing. I agree. I wanna, I, I wanna just ask you, you know, how, how it's playing out in, in, in St. Louis. You know, what, what are you seeing there in terms of, of issues of equity and, and how um, your your philanthropy is is thinking about or, or using using communication. Yeah, um, that's a good question. It, it's like everywhere, Rich is challenging. It's very challenging for us. Um, I would say probably because um, we are not considered um, experts on equity, and I think to you have to address issues of racial equity before you can even start to think about other areas of equity, where it's whether it's health equity, geographic equity. And, and in Missouri, we have um, what can sometimes be seen as a rural and urban divide. And we deal with other inequities um, that makes it really hard for us to move the needle and move our work forward. But um, I think our biggest gift in trying to achieve it here for us um, in our geographic area is partnership. 
Um, if we can coordinate better and be better partners. Um, and like you said, get folks to understand that he goes just beyond health and the philanthropic sector, um, that it's collaboration with the business and the educational institutions and all of the systems involved in order to transform those other systems, um, then we'll be better off. But we can't, we can't get there um, quite yet. We're making great progress. Um, but just like uh, Robert Wood Johnson, we've taken an equity lens on everything that we, we do internally and externally. Um, and, and it's working, but it's very challenging, challenging work. And I think we often get questioned, um, of, you know, about what makes us the experts um, and we're learning. And that's all that we really want people to understand that is that we're learning. We're not the experts. We just, we wanna work with folks and try to figure it out and, and have a healthier Missouri, so. Yeah, you know, I, I... I sometimes worry that um, we hold off on acting because, because of that, that issue of we're not the expert. Yeah. And you know, I know for us as a foundation with, with a perfectionist culture and a risk aversion that's there, that we're constantly having to fight that and say, okay, um, let's take those first steps. And recognize that we aren't the experts, but what can we do to support the experts that are out there? Um, you know, when we, one of the things that we often hear is that when we speak out on an issue, it creates space for our grantees and for others to, to step up on that issue in a way that they, they couldn't before. Uh, for us, it's been, a, it's been a real journey. I remember um, when I was first talking about health equity, um, I was really reluctant to talk about health equity without, you know, when talking about the barriers groups faced without listing like six or seven different groups that had different barriers. So racism, sexism, you know, uh, uh, homophobia, classism, rural issue, you know, all. And what I'm finding now, the more that we get into this, it speaks to an issue you, you just raised is that, um, we're centering a lot more work around racial equity, racial justice, and uh, and not finding that wow, if we didn't mention these others, then you know the issue, then then we left somebody out. It's it's like no, if we don't if we don't dive in and really focus on the critical issues of, of racial equity, uh, we will have failed. And this moment in our history, uh, with the the pandemic, with the economic downturn. And the movement for racial justice that has 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 gained so much ground following the horrific murder of George Floyd. You know, if we don't use this moment in history, uh, then 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 shame on us because this is an opportunity. It's an opportunity for us to get traction uh, on the conversation and how people think about opportunity and to hopefully move towards uh, policy changes so that that in the future. Uh, we won't face a day when when things hit communities so in such a disparate fashion. Yeah, I, and I think, um, Rich, that's the balance. It's it's really defining the role of philanthropy and not just being considered a funder, but balancing that we don't want to come in and white cape organizations and entities, but we 
there are resources that we provide that can be beneficial, um, whether it's convening, whether it's being a, that um, partner that organizations need to get to the next step or leverage other funding, but um, seeing us as something more than just the funder um, and, and making that work for, um, for the betterment of the people and thinking about the people really. So yeah. I, I think that's our challenge um, in, our, in our industry. Um, and that's something that we see a lot of, of in Missouri. Um, so with all that you said, Rich, what, what type of leadership um, do you think is needed in a time like this when there's so much um, discourse and, um, and, and danger um, and, and just so much, uh, so much division going on. What would you say about the leadership that is, that is needed, whether it's um, within these philanthropic organizations that we represent or just overall to help us achieve some type of, of equity? Well, you know, when I reflect on, on my position at the, at the foundation, um, it is a seat of incredible privilege. Uh, you know, we have an enormous amount of resources that were left for the foundation to, to use to further the, the, the public good, the public interest. Mm -hmm. And with that privilege comes responsibility. Mm -hmm. And um, that means being willing to, to take risk and to stand up and speak out for, for what's right. And, um, you know, I, I have a, a particular opportunity that, that uh, others don't in that um, a lot of media wants to hear from me because I ran the CDC during a pandemic. And um, I use that, um, that's my in in the door. And then I look to see in every one of those interviews and conversations, how can I bring this around to an issue of equity? Um, so whether we're talking about vaccines, you know, recent conversation around, you know, will we have a vaccine and, and um, how we know it works? Well, I bring it around to, well, how will we make sure that uh, those who have been at most risk uh, get that vaccine and bring it to, around to issues of, of trust and mistrust uh, in various communities and how you work to, to build trust? Um, you know, it's, it, it's a time for philanthropy to be bold. And I see a lot of uh, uh, philanthropies, in, including ours, uh, increasing how much money they're putting out during this time of crisis because the need across the, the nation is, is so enormous uh, in terms of humanitarian aid, but also in terms of the need uh, for communities to be able to have agency and to move forward uh, on, on the issues that are so important across our country. Uh, so you need leadership to be able to stand up and say, okay, we are going to use our resources at this time. We are going to use our, our one of those resources is our voice and our political capital. We're going to, we're going to do that. Um, it's, you know, when you say what kind of leadership, it's hard for me not to think about what, what type of political leadership we need. Um, and what we need is, you know, I see, I see evidence of this leadership across the country in, in blue states and red states where you'll see uh, certain governors who are saying, we are gonna be driven and led by science. We're gonna be driven by evidence. We're not gonna be driven by politics here. We're gonna do what it takes uh, to get this under control and save lives and get our economy up and, uh, up and running. We need that kind of leadership at the federal level. We need 
to know that, that the national strategy is based on science and based on evidence um, and that uh, we need to be able to come together as a nation so that the idea of wearing a mask isn't viewed as a, a political statement. It's viewed as a, as a, a, a health statement, as a statement that, that I really care and I want to get this under control. So, you know, that's the kind of leadership we need. It could come from any party. It's, it, you know, that kind of leadership of, of being science and evidence driven uh, and being equity focused um, is not something that has to be aligned with any party. Um, I was really um, uh, optimistic early on in this when Congress came together and passed the CARES Act and put money in people's pockets and increased people's unemployment um, uh, checks and put up uh, a moratorium on evictions, at least for the ones that were, were uh, federally insured and put up uh, as well a moratorium on, on uh, mortgage foreclosures. These are kinds of things that, that you can see when, when uh, people come together across the aisle. And we, you know, I don't believe anything's going to happen until after the elections. But after the elections, we need both parties to come together and find a way to make the response to this an American response, not a political response, where we're going to continue to see uh, a devastating impact and an impact uh, that hits communities of color uh, uh, incredibly hard. So you, you, I'm going to go back a little bit. You talked about how you are able to speak about equity and insert those messages. And because of your history in the field at ABC, you're getting asked to be a source. Um, so how do you drive home those messages though, Rich, and not sound like a talking point? How, how, how do you show up and you be a source um, because you're on the radar, but um, you're you're really hitting all the right points and doing them well to where you're really educating people, but you're not just serving in a piece as a source because you're, doc, you're Dr. Rich Besser. How are you really driving home what people need to, to hear around health equity and that intersection of health and racism and systemic racism? Yeah, you know, it, it, can, be, it can be challenging. You know, there there are different there are different outlets, different approaches that that uh, that I'm called on. So you know, in in a podcast where there's a, there's a 30 minute conversation where you can really get into something in depth, that's 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 a I love that because then you can really get into issues of structural racism and interpersonal racism and how that's playing out during this pandemic. Um, in an interview on on cable news. Um, you know, that may go five or six minutes, which is a long time in, in TV time. Um, you can get into you can get into it a little bit. Having stories helps. Uh, being able to personalize helps. You know, I'm a general pediatrician, and I uh, uh, volunteer in a clinic about 15 miles from where where I'm sitting right now in Trenton, New Jersey. Um, it's lower income community, largely African American. Um, but I can bring stories from my patients and, and their families that are relevant to issues of, of equity and, and help connect it at a personal level. Uh, I'm an epidemiologist and I love statistics, but, I, but statistics aren't the way to someone's heart. And you, you want to capture someone's heart and then, then you can capture their head after that. But if you can connect at the personal level, uh, so someone can get a sense of, of what somebody else is experiencing, 
and just the um, the the challenges and the choices that that so many people in our country are are forced to make. Um, then you know, if you can connect at that human level, um, then I think there's 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 that opportunity for progress and and, and a way forward. <laughs> Um, but then, I'll, you know, the, the, the other thing that I will do for 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 news is sometimes they want a soundbite, and you know, I worked in that world, and I can give a soundbite that's six seconds, eight seconds, nine seconds, whatever they want, and there's some, you know, quid, quid pro quo. I'll give a soundbite, maybe next time I'm on for a longer interview. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, it's it's part of it. Yeah. So you touched on stories and that reaching hearts and minds and you being a physician and how you're able to carry those stories and bring that into um, the messaging um, when you're called upon by the, the media. But um, what about data driven? You talked about science and it's a little different um, leadership that um, uses the science. But what about as communicators? We throw around terms evidence-based, this uh, communications campaign being research-informed. How do you balance, or do you think that we should be balancing the use of data in as communicators to inform our work, our messaging, and storytelling, or is there one that we should be using um, over the other? What is your take? Uh, well, you know, communication is a science, is an art. You know, we've got, I don't know, how many hundreds of people who are who are on on with us right now who have far more expertise in this than, than I do, and I think it's critically important to respect the science of communication, uh, and that that you know there are tools and techniques, and you know we do we we support a lot of communications research, you know, formative research around what words resonate, which ones don't, which ones play well across. The political spectrum, which ones play play well in different communities and which ones don't, um, because the last thing you want to do is shut down the conversation because you picked a word that that's going to push someone's button when there's another way that you could get there. Equity is one of those words that pushes buttons, uh, which is why I often talk about it as opportunity and dive come at it, come into it that that way. Um, so so. The science of communication is, is key, but I think that the messages that you have have to be putting forward things that are evidence-based. Um, and so, you know, as a, as a foundation, one of our approaches is to, is to support research and evidence and make sure that everything we put forward uh, is based on the best available science that, the, that there is. It's, it's, it's really important to us in, in our work. And you know, not all foundations you know fund research, but all foundations can make use of research that, that's out there and is widely widely available. Um, you know, and the CDC, you know, it's it's under siege right now, um, but they are still churning out incredibly important research um, during this pandemic, looking at the impact in different communities and different places, and lifting that up and elevating it, and pointing to the importance of that information is something as communicators uh, we can do that will help support the agency uh, and make sure that uh, it, the information is well known so it can be used to, to help protect people's lives. Mm -hmm. That's great advice. Thank you. Um, speaking of the CDC, we have a question. Um, the question is, 
Um, is the CDC irreparably compromised? Communication is critical in public health and communication moves at the speed of trust. Is trust now broken with the CDC? Uh, I think trust is broken, but I don't think it's irreparable. Uh, you know, I, I talk to former colleagues at CDC all the time and CDC is still loaded with thousands of you know, public health professionals who are doing incredible work. Um, it's really hard on their morale when they see the agency getting beat up, uh, when they see political fingerprints on, on their scientific work, um, when they don't have the ability to communicate directly to the public through, through the media. Um, that's really, really challenging. Um, but it, I think that the talent is there, the work is still there, is still going on, and it, it can be repaired. It's much harder though to repair trust than it is to maintain trust. So there's gonna be a lot of work that needs to be done. You know, I, I wish we were hearing more from the CDC director in terms of defending the agency, uh, but you know, you, can, you don't know what's going on behind closed doors. And uh, in some circumstances, the work behind closed doors um, is, is really, really important. And you want that to continue too. What, what would you have done differently? Well, you know, it's it's hard it's hard to say. I can tell you what we did differently in 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 2009. But in 2009, uh, you know, I remember briefing the the president and the and the cabinet on the approach we were taking to the pandemic. And what President Obama said was, you know, everything we do will be based on the best available uh, science. And you know he looked around the table at all of his uh, the members of his cabinet, and I took that message back to CDC, and people cheered. I, I mean, it was just so empowering to those people who were working around the clock to to mitigate the impact of the pandemic to hear political leaders say this. And you know, I, I did a full briefing of the cabinet, and the next morning, the president on a Saturday radio address basically repeated all of the messages that I had given to the cabinet the day before. And so hearing it come from a political leader, uh, it, it magnifies it, you know, and when you see political leaders standing next to, alongside the, their public health experts and nodding along, and, you know, when their public health experts are saying wearing a mask, they're wearing a mask. Uh, and, you know, they say keep six feet apart, they're standing six feet apart. When, when, when you're seeing the behavior modeled at that level, um, that's how you see, you see real impact in the, the nation coming together instead of being, being divided. You know, I think anyone who's in a, a position of, of leadership um, has to decide for themselves uh, what line they won't cross. And if they're forced or asked to cross that line, uh, they have to be willing to step down and call it out. And for, for anyone, the line's gonna, gonna vary, um, you know, but it's really important that you do some soul searching as to what that line is. Uh, so that, you know, being in the position, being in that job uh, doesn't overwhelm uh, the responsibility you have uh, and the privilege you have in that role. Yeah, that's inspirational. <laughs> well, it, it's, yeah, it's hard, you know? Um, and it's not just people who run in agencies. I mean, yeah. you know, in, in your position, Courtney, you, 
you know, if you were asked to do something that you thought was unethical or, or crossed the line, um, you know, you'd have to do some soul searching of, okay, how far would I go on this? And it's, uh, it's something wherever someone sits, for many people in America, they don't have that choice. You know, it's, it, it, I recognize that if I were forced to do something in my current role, I have the, the economic uh, stability to be able to say, oh, I can walk away from this. And I, and I can get another job. For a lot of people in America during this pandemic, uh, you know, they don't have that. They're, they're going to work because they have to. And, you know, I, I just see some, when you see people having to make those kinds of decisions, you, you need to hold our leaders to at least the level of, of you know, moral truth. That if they're being asked to do something that, that that truly crosses their values, that they would say no. Yeah. So, um, so this brings to mind for me that I know you sit on a few advisory committees that were focused on getting states reopened and the economic uh, recovery aspect of the pandemic. What, what would you say needs to happen um, to ensure that the country gets back on track with equity at the center, though, in an equitable fashion? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I'm on the New Jersey Governor's uh, Restart and Recovery Commission, and and I, I'm one of the New Jersey representatives on on seven state regional commission. And one of the things that that I found really heartening, um, as a foundation, we put forward a set of uh, equity principles uh, for recovery uh, and response. And um, in the conversations at our state level. Uh, we have often used those principles as, as a framework. So one, one is ensuring you're collecting data that you can break down by race and ethnicity and gender and disability and zip code so that you understand what's going on in all, all communities. And it's not just for health data, it's for economic data. Um, we've, we've spent most of our time talking about the health crisis, but the data on the economic crisis really shows that the same communities that are getting hit the hardest uh, in terms of health, are getting hit the hardest economically, and so you know, in our conversations in New Jersey, what our governor is saying is, you know, let's let's not just use this as an opportunity to get back to where we were. Let's use this as an opportunity to get to where we want to be, mm -hmm. and where we want to be is a state that provides opportunity for everybody. And there are a lot of communities in New Jersey that have been communities of disinvestment. So how do you ensure that dollars are going there uh, to support uh, minority and women-owned businesses uh, that have been hit so hard during this pandemic? How do you ensure that the dollars are there? Uh, because you know, as you look at how some of the dollars during during the pandemic have flowed, they have not flowed to the communities that are most most at need. The, the Payroll Protection Act favored those those businesses that already had uh, great standing with with big banks. And minority-owned businesses were less likely to, and so the money wasn't wasn't flowing there. So, how do you ensure that the the, the recovery uh, is hitting all communities? And you know, I I don't know the answer to that. It's going to take a lot of federal infusion of resources, uh, access to credit and dollars, uh, breaking down the barriers that have have, have and policies that have led to this being. A hyper segregated nation, um, addressing the, the the wealth gap in America. You know these are these are big issues for us to wrestle with. But if we can agree as a nation that everyone should have opportunity, 
it opens the door to some of these conversations that are that are truly essential. Yeah, how how do you not just get there, but you sustain it um, so yeah. where it doesn't go away? I think that's the the scary thought in my mind. You know, um, you you see all kinds of diversity and inclusion positions being added, and all types of advancements happening just um, in the midst of all this racial turmoil and it's great. And, but how do we keep it going to where it's not just a moment in time, which is now, but it, it becomes a way, a, a way of life for us as Americans. Um, I, I, I think that is so, so spot on, so important. Um, you know, we have to address the root cause of a lot of, uh, of of what we are seeing in in America, and policy is critically important to that. Mindset is important to that. Uh, community power is important to that. Um, if we're just putting a you know a um, a, a short term check in someone's pocket, that may help get through this short term crisis, but it's not going to lead to the fundamental changes. You know, we want to see we want to see universal health care. We want to see policies where everyone has sick leave and family medical leave. We wanna see a, a change to how our schools are funded uh, and how housing development takes place. Uh, and we wanna see strategies that approach the, the wealth gap in, in America. You know, there's, there's a lot of big time changes that have to, have to happen if, if we don't wanna uh, have the next crisis uh, play out the same way this one is. Exactly. Um, I'm gonna to go to another question, Rich. In the chat, we have, if you had advice for the person who will take the oath of office in January, what would it be? Wow, um, that's a great question. Uh, you know, when it comes to the pandemic, uh, I would say, you know, model the behavior that you wanna see and, and be led by science. Uh, you know, it's worked we have a lot of people on this call from around the globe and there's so much we can learn from what other countries are doing uh, and the success that so many countries have had in uh, controlling this pandemic. You know, we've had more than 200,000 deaths in this country and uh, our first death occurred at around the same time as the first death in South Korea. Uh, and they've had fewer than a thousand deaths. You know, yes, we're a bigger nation, but, but they've been driven by science, they've been driven by public health. Um, and what I would say to whoever takes off the oath of office is bring us together as a nation. Uh, demonstrate that you value every individual, every life in this country, that everyone has, has worth. Uh, and then have it not just be words, but have those words uh, be, be manifest by action. Um, it's so, it's so incredibly important at this time in our history. So the health crisis that we've been talking about along with the national conversation on race has created an opportunity for our society to reimagine and rethink um, policies and systems and power. How can we as um, communicators all across the world as you reference, um, how can we make the most of this moment? Yeah, um, you know, use the tools that we have to keep it front and center. You know, the conversations that we want to drive are are really challenging conversations, uh, and you 
what I find is you often have to elbow your way in to get those conversations to be front and center and, and not uh, fade away. Um, one of the things that, that we're doing as a foundation and that I know many philanthropies are doing is we're looking internally at how we work. You know, we have as our big focus health equity, uh, but we're looking at our internal processes of how does equity and inclusion uh, manifest itself or not uh, within our own building, uh, within our own interactions with our grantees. Uh, how do we create space to really interrogate that and, and ensure that uh, we're not just externally driving towards equity, but we're looking to see how can our own practices model that behavior as well. Um, and that's that's hard work, it's not easy work, um, but it's, it, you know, I, I think uh, for, for my time at the foundation, there's nothing that excites me more than the idea that we are, that we are trying uh, to move towards, uh, towards modeling, modeling the behavior we wanna see around the country in terms of equity and inclusion. Um, it's, it's really, really important. You know, Rich, um, in my organization at Missouri Foundation for Health, we often roll out messaging, use messaging that encourages encourages Missourians to take care of one another, um, to understand the benefits of your neighbors having um, what they need to thrive and living their best life. Um, uh, we just think that this is the right time for it. And of course, we, we weave that in into economic supports that communities need and healthcare supports that communities need. But um, I just would like to hear from you <clears throat> as we get ready to wrap things up on how valuable you think that that type of messaging might be. And, um, and, and if there are opportunities for unified, if there's opportunities for unified campaigns around that, is that what we should be talking about? Should we be encouraging um, people to just look out for one another and understand more the value of safety net organizations and the plight and the, the circumstances that families and their lived experiences and that whole theme of empathy? Should we be developing more messaging around that um, and, and why or why not? I think that's a really good question, and um, I don't have a really good answer for it because I, I, um, I'm of, of two different minds on it. I think that empathy um, should be a big motivator, uh, and the idea that uh, what I do has an impact on, on you and, and your health and your well-being. Um, when I was at CDC, uh, I, I led a program there on, on antibiotic use, on appropriate antibiotic use. And we, we, for a long time, we were going with messaging that, you know, if you use an antibiotic and it's not indicated, you could put other people at risk of a resistant infection that, that can't be treated with an antibiotic. So, you know, use your antibiotics only when they're necessary. And we got nowhere, nowhere with that message. Um, and so we did, we used communication, focus testing and groups and, and, and what we found worked as a better motivator was if I said to you, if you use an antibiotic when it's not indicated, you put yourself at risk of all the side effects of a stomach upset and other problems. And the next time you need that antibiotic, it won't work for you. 
And we found that that was much more effective than this, this message of I'm doing that for the community good. Um, it's slightly different than empathy, but it, but it, um, I'm not sure. I think that we need to follow communication science and we need to really test our messages and make sure that we're not just going with what we think is going to work. Now, there's so many panels and groups I'm on where they say, oh, we need an ad campaign to tell people, you know, to stay home if they're sick. And it's like, really? You think people haven't heard that they should stay home if they're sick? Um, is it the lack of hearing that message or is it because they're not being given the resources to stay home if they're sick? They're going to lose their job if they stay home from they're sick or they're not going to be able to feed their family if they stay home and they're sick. And so um, I, I find in a lot of settings that like the knee-jerk reaction is, oh, let's do an ad campaign. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm, I'm really inspired by the power of communication to change the narrative, you know, to shift from a deficit narrative to a to an asset-based narrative of you know the strength in communities, the strength that we're seeing around this country, um, and and ensuring that people have what they need to do what they what they know has to be done. Thank you. Um, before we sign off, um, we have a final question in the chat that um, I think it's a good one. So. Um, what are you telling your boys about the future that we face? Are you hopeful for our kids? What would you say? What would you say to someone you encountered? Who? Okay, I'll break it up. It seems to be two questions in one. Rich, what are you telling your boys about the future we face? Are you hopeful for our kids? I I am hopeful. I mean, I'm a, I'm an optimist by nature, but but our our sons are in their. Uh, early 20s, mid 20s. Mm -hmm. And um, they're not taking what is as what what has to be. Mm -hmm. You know, what I'm what I'm seeing uh, so in so many places, seeing within our in within our foundation as well, is that um, younger, younger staff uh, are coming in and saying and challenging the status quo and saying, no, we can do better than this. Uh, get out of the way and let us lead, and I find that I find that really inspiring. And so, you know, I am encouraged by the amount of activism that I'm seeing around the country. Uh, I'm very ins inspired by the movement for racial justice, uh, and I'm just inspired by uh, what I'm learning from people who are, you know, a third my age. So I am I am really hopeful. How about you? Are you are you are you optimistic? Some days I am, and um, other days, you know, I feel like I have a stamp on my head that says, "When is it gonna stop?" I, I, I don't. I shrug. And to be totally honest with you, um, I, I think our youth definitely have the right idea um, on how to change it and how to get it to a place that we we can all be proud of as a country, but. Um, how that's going to happen or when that's going to happen. I don't know. I, 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 I honestly do not know. I try not to get surprised, but day to day, Rich, you see things. Yeah. Um, you, we have access to more things with social media. You see comments, you see a lack of empathy for uh, meeting people where they are. And, and I, I just, I do not know. 
Um, and so, um, yeah, you know, so we'll we'll end with one question because you you emphasize the science and um, evidence base, and someone wanted to know. Um, what would you say to someone you encountered who was not wearing a mask in a public space indoors? Or would you say anything? Um, well, I think I would say something. Uh, but, you know, I'll have to see, see in that moment. And, and um, you know, what I... It's so much easier if the rules are in place, you know. So if the rule is that you can, that you must do this, um, you know, then I then I think I would say, you know, excuse me, um, but you need to wear a mask indoors. Um, I hope I hope I would do that. Uh, it's easier to say I would than to know with certainty that I truly would. But if we, you know, and it, and and it's hard and. Um, and that's coming from a position of, uh, I know, of real, of real privilege. So. Um, okay, thank you. Thank you. Um, we're done here. This has been such an amazing experience. Thank you so much. And I just have to say, if you're ever in St. Louis, come by Missouri Foundation for Health, come by and see us. Um, and, um, and we'll be happy to host you. I think, and I'm going to take you up on that because uh, our younger son lives in St. Louis, and I love St. Louis. Uh, so, uh, um, when it's when it's safer to travel and be out and about, I, I look forward to seeing you there. Thank you. Thank, so, thank you so for this. This was wonderful. Enjoyed it. Thank you, Comnet. Bye, everybody. Bye, bye.